Welcome to People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose is a podcast of inspiring people whose stories help you see things differently, live with intentionality, elevate the way you participate in the world, and take the necessary leaps in your life to seek and find your passions. Come with us and develop the courage to wholeheartedly pursue your purpose and unleash your truest potential. When things start going wrong, you really want to control them and fix them. And it almost takes a skill set to just be fine with things that you can't control and let them go and just focus on things you can't control. You need the challenge, you need the stimulation to keep entertained. You know, if, if you know everything, then that leads to boredom. Bringing it back to the present, just enjoy the day-to-day, enjoy the struggle, enjoy the challenge of life, and not necessarily knowing everything that's going to happen. Mental health in general is a lifestyle. It's not just a cure. It's not just you are now healthy. You have to work towards it. Am I doing everything I can to maximize the present on a daily basis? Understand where your emotions are coming from. Don't suppress them, but allow them to be. Jesse Gold is the founder of Heroic Hearts Project. He was born in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and grew up in New Miami Beach, Florida. In 2009, he graduated from Cornell University with a degree in economics. After working in investment banking for a short time, he enlisted in the Army and became an airborne ranger for four years and three combat deployments. Most recently, he worked in finance in Tampa, Florida. After struggling with severe anxiety for many years, he finally decided to go to an ayahuasca retreat which has had a profoundly positive effect on his anxiety and his daily life. During the week-long retreat, he instantly saw the healing potential of the drink and knew that it could be a powerful tool in healing the mental struggles of his fellow veterans. This experience inspired Jesse to found Heroic Hearts Project, an organization that connects veterans in need of healing with ayahuasca therapy. Since its founding, Heroic Hearts Project quickly become one of the most prominent veteran voices pushing for psychedelic-based therapy. Meeting Jesse Gold today was a great experience. Jesse is someone that is commendable because he was so lost in his purpose that he went and did this radical thing of going to Peru and doing this two-week experience to drink ayahuasca and do a shaman sort of retreat. And he's come out of it so changed that he no longer struggles with the PTSD of being in the military. And he has created this vehicle that he's full-time in called the Heroic Hearts Project to be able to help veterans who are just in his situation. He lived in Colombia as he started it up, now he's moving because of it to New York. And I think a lot of the way he directs his life from purpose is really commendable and something that I hope you pay close attention to as he expresses how he found his purpose and why he does the Heroic Hearts Project. I think that Although this is a very esoteric way in which Jesse expresses and lives and finds his purpose, it's something that's also highly relatable because of the way that Jesse sees purpose as this day-to-day interaction with being the best version of ourselves and of lifting up those around us in our community to find themselves again and get past some of these self-debilitating, negative beliefs, suicidal ideation all of these sort of things to be able to overcome their trauma and find their purpose. I think that's amazing. I think what Jesse shares today 
is very illuminating. I hope that you can go into this interview with an open mind because this is the future. Psychedelics are making their way into modern medicine and Jesse and the Heroic Hearts Organization is at the forefront. So, so with that, I hope that you find um, your sense of purpose as you listen to this illuminating interview with today's person of purpose, Jesse Gold. Hello, Jesse Gold. Welcome to People of Purpose podcast. So good to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Great to make this finally work. Yeah. Well, this time I find myself in New Mexico in the driver's seat of a car as we're doing an interview. And you're in New York. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, I just moved here. So I've been here about a month. Wow, nice. Where did you come from before? Uh, Colombia, the country. So I was living in Medellin with my girlfriend. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Nice. Yeah. Well, your claim to fame right now is you've started a really uh, heroic project of yourself called the Heroic Hearts Project, where you help a lot of veterans in need of treatment to overcome things like PTSD and related symptoms. You yourself was in the Army. Guess I'll let you kind of tell your little backstory that got you started with Heroic Hearts Project. Yeah, of course. You know, like you said, there is currently a pretty severe mental health crisis uh, in the veteran community. Record rates of PTSD, depression, uh, veteran suicides are at all-time high and much higher than the percentage of the average population. And the only available methods don't really seem to address everybody's issues. So, you know, the go-to is some sort of talk therapy and then generally addition of medication. And it can be very effective for a select group, but it leaves a huge segment of the the population of the people that are struggling without any answers or, you know, still having a lot of issues, even with all these protocols. And unfortunately, because of certain laws and regulations, it's really prevented some powerful substances from being investigated. And I'm referring to psychedelics, cannabis, other substances like MDMA, which are emerging. So like you said, my background is I was an Army Ranger for a number of years, multiple deployments to Afghanistan. When I got out, I experienced some struggles like a lot of other veterans. On one side, I was fortunate because I was still able to maintain on the outside a very stable life. I had a good job. I had a good social network. I was definitely consuming alcohol too much, kind of self-medicating. But, you know, keeping it together, not really making any really bad decisions, just kind of going along. But on the inside, I was just eating myself up. I was in this miserable spot, unhappy with life, couldn't seem to overcome this sort of hump, this depression, this, this dark cloud that was holding me back. And no matter what I tried, I couldn't get over it. And so I tried to go to the VA. Unfortunately, my VA was one of the ones that was understaffed for professionals, for therapists. And so my main purpose was just to go to get talk therapy. They said that, you know, unless I was willing to go on medications, they really couldn't spend the time on somebody who wasn't willing to take the full treatment protocol. And so they suggested like a short list, but it was essentially stuff I was already doing, exercising, meditating, journaling. And so they essentially just left me in this situation where it was like, all right, we'll take medication like SSRIs, or you pretty much have to figure this out on your own. And so I left there and I was like, all right, well, I guess I have to figure this out on my own. And then that journey just 
I ignored it for as long as I could, but it just got me to the spot where I just couldn't deny it anymore. I wasn't happy. Something needed to change. And I knew I was just leading an increasingly unhealthy lifestyle that I predicted would get me in trouble down the line or just lead to an even worse situation for myself. And heard about ayahuasca first, was very skeptical. It was never anything on my radar, wasn't interested in any sort of psychedelics, had my own stigmas as many people do. But like I said, I just got to this point. And so I left my job, decided to risk it, went to Peru to pursue this ayahuasca therapy with, like I said, a lot of doubts, a lot of fears, a lot of unknowns. But fortunately, it turned out as great as it possibly could have. I went there. It was a very hard experience for me personally. But within myself, I saw a lot of profound changes and I saw some amazing stories there which after investigation and after seeing what sort of lasting effects it had on my life, it just became clear that this was something that needed to be known and discussed more, especially in the veteran community. So that was the inspiration for Heroic Hearts Project. So Heroic Hearts Project is a registered nonprofit in the U.S., and we connect and support veterans that are seeking out psychedelic therapies, particularly ayahuasca therapy. Wow. Well, thank you for that backstory. That's quite extensive. I guess let's start with you personally, and then we can expand it to what your organization's doing. So on my podcast, I think one thing that I like to focus on is around how people kind of discovered their sense of purpose. And then, like you said, you risked it and you went for it. I want to talk about that mindset for a little bit. What was it that shifted your perspective to where like, this is my final option. It's riskier to not do this than to do this. Was there a specific moment or feeling or how did you decide to take action at that point? It was just accumulation. Like I said, I was just so many days of being not happy. And at the end of the week, it started to be more days of where I was unhappy versus happy. I had first moved to Tampa. I was in corporate finance. And so at first, adjusting and learning the ropes to the new job, all that was stimulating and all that was distracting. But as I got better at my job and it became less creative, more in a corporate sort of sense in my life too. The less distractions there were, the more I had to kind of come to terms with this thing that I couldn't understand. And along that lines too, like I said, I was just drinking more and more to because I was anxious or depressed. And the only way I could figure to suppress that or to get to the end of the day was to have a beer or have multiple beers. But like I said, the good side was I didn't ruin my life. But on the bad side, because I could manage it and handle it, that allowed me to be even more unhealthy, I feel like. And so it wasn't necessarily one specific moment, but it was just at some point I just had this realization where I just sat myself down and I just saw that my life was sustainable at that point. And, you know, I had become financially stable, fortunately, so... You know, it wasn't probably the best financial decision, but I was able to do it. And I knew that my job at that point was something that I didn't want to pursue. And so everything just kind of fell into place. And like I said, the whole ayahuasca thing took a little time because at first I was very doubtful, skeptical. I had uh, pretty negative stereotypes of stigma uh, of psychedelics and people use them. And the more I read into it, the more the thought sprouted in my head. It's, it appeared different from my conception. Uh, and so I 
kind of loosened myself up to the idea gradually until, you know, it became a culminating event. Wow. And then how did you decide on ayahuasca? Was there a person that came into your life that kind of presented it to you or was it your own research? Yeah, it came across my radar through a podcast or it was, it's already back then it was growing in social media and an awareness. And so I heard about it. Somebody's own experience, which I don't, I don't think I took too much to their experience because they're really going into sort of the hallucination part as opposed to the therapeutic part. But like I said, it was interesting, especially because it had that indigenous sort of background as opposed to just somebody using it recreationally. And that was the biggest thing for me because, like I said, I had these such strong stigmas. I just needed that like crack. I just needed, okay, this is different. So I'm allowed to use it in my own head. I will not be associated with the things that I don't like. You know, for a lot of people that have stigmas against something like cannabis, there are issues like, oh, I don't want to be a stoner. And they feel like if they start smoking pot, then all of a sudden they'll become the stoner that they don't like. And so it's the same for me anyway with psychedelics. I had my own view of what it meant to be somebody that took that. And that's not how I viewed myself. But then as I read about this, that saw that it wasn't recreational in the sense that I had viewed other things. It warmed me up to the idea. And I I could find that little crack in my head of like, okay, well, I'm doing this for different reasons. I'm not what I'm fearing myself to be. Yeah, for sure. That's great. Yeah. You're open-minded person. What is it that you discovered on your ayahuasca experience that you could relate to us? I know it's probably a very deeply personal experience, but what is it that kind of comes back to you about that experience that you think opened you up to a greater realization about what your life could be? Right. So, I mean, like I said, I went in not really knowing what to expect, never having tried psychedelics before. This was the first one, and it's a very intense one on the spectrum. Uh, So the first couple of ceremonies were just very intense, very hard physical for me because there's an aspect, especially with ayahuasca, of letting go, you know, because you're losing control, you're losing your sense of reality in a lot of senses. And for somebody like me that has a controlling brain and doesn't like to relinquish control, that can be a very hard process. So the first few sessions were really just almost like a learning process of how to relax, how to not be sort of a control freak of that sort of sense. And it took me a while. It was very difficult. It was, it was pretty frightening. But even in that was its own lesson. I feel like from that, I, it was almost like this intense workout where I learned how to flex a part of my brain that prevented me from being some controlling. So I definitely took that to the rest of my life where I think that relates to stress because when things start going wrong, you really want to control them and fix them. And it almost takes a skill set to just, you know, be fine with things that you can't control and, and let them go and just focus on things you can control. The other aspect was it just really calmed me down in terms of searching for my purpose or what's next step of my life. It really, I had a vision towards the end that said, if I knew exactly what was going to happen, if I knew that I was going to the, the exact career path and the exact success I would have, it would just put me right back into this depressive state because you need the challenge. You need the stimulation to keep entertained. You know, if, if you know everything, then that leads to boredom. That leads to just, you know, drinking your life away. And so it really almost something that's a very obvious insight. I understood on a completely different level and it really calmed me down about what the future had entailed for me. And so I could just, and, you know, it's still a process. 
bringing it back to the present. Just enjoy the day to day, enjoy the struggle, enjoy the challenge of life and not necessarily knowing everything that's going to happen. Right. Did that take a lot of deprogramming for you to deal with stress in that way? Like in your former career, when you were in the military, was there a different way that you were dealing with stress or being trained to deal with stressful situations? Yeah, I mean, in some ways with the the military, it's really about controlling situations as much as possible. And obviously that's impossible. So they do, especially an organization like Rangers, cater more towards people that can be trained, but then also think on their feet if things go worst case scenario. But a lot of the basic programming are these like battle drills. So if a situation happens, you've done this situation multiple hundreds, if not thousands of times. So, you know, incoming fire, you with your group have trained how you will react personally. And then with a group to either um, retreat from it or advance from it. And so a lot of military training is just ingraining, ingraining whatever the baseline situations that you could possibly deal with so that it's almost like an instinctual sort of thing. Right. Right. Wow, that's amazing. And then personally, how has this stuck with you since? Like you said, it calmed you down. It gave you a sense of purpose. When, do you tap into that feeling on a regular basis? Or is it just no looking back anymore? Like you're a changed person forever. You've erased that side of you that had been so depressive and wasn't an anxiety filled. Uh, a little bit of both. And it's a constant work in progress. And that's what our program tries to stress with people. Cause especially now as it's getting more popular, a lot of people are looking to ayahuasca as this magic pill. Like they'll go there for a week, whatever issues they're having done, you know, they'll be better off, but it's really a tool. It will allow you to get to better spots, but you still have to put the work in, you know, mental health in general is a lifestyle. It's not just a cure. It's not just, you are now healthy. You have to work towards it. And so that's where the, the integration comes in and that the integration part is afterwards of what positive things in your life are you going to incorporate that emphasizes these things that you learn. So, I mean, that is, like I said before, the fact of staying present and enjoying the present, you know, that's a constant work in progress. I don't think I'll ever perfect it, but, you know, sometimes when I get stressed out, too busy, it's easy to lose sight of that and get, you know, lost in the weeds. And then hopefully by week's end, I'll come back and try to recenter all that kind of stuff. But on the other side too, there were things that really just, I felt changed afterwards. So I tell a lot of people that it almost felt like the first experiences I had really defragged my brain. Whereas it felt like it's almost running inefficiently and there's aspects almost fighting each other, which were like holding me back to where it almost like, made everything realign and work better. And I've continued to feel that and some lasting benefits of that where I had pretty bad social anxiety and it will still come up every once in a while, but not to the same severe spot. And certain things that gave me social anxiety, like just being in certain social situations, that stimulus no longer affected me in the same way. Wow, that's amazing. And you attribute this to your experience on ayahuasca? Or was it something bigger than that? No, I mean, I definitely attribute it to that. And one of the biggest times I realized it was, so there's like two instances. The first was months and months, like six months after it. I had felt definitely in my life that my social anxiety had changed, but I wasn't necessarily like testing it or whatever. 
And I had actually traveled back to Florida because I was living in Columbia at this time. And I had gone to like an old bar and stuff just to hang out with friends. And it'd be, you know, like a situation that I'd be used to. And in the past, there'd always be some semblance of social anxiety. And I'd gotten used to it. You know, it was just something you live with if you have constant social anxiety. And, you know, like in that time, maybe I'd drink a little bit too much to deal with it. But I was in this same situation almost to the T. And it felt weird all of a sudden. And I realized, like, the anxiety was just gone. And so that was big sort of revelation. But, yeah, I mean, and since then, in other instances... If I've fall back into stressed or anxious spots, I've done a number of times where I can just think back to some of the scenes that I saw during my first ceremony, and it almost wipes away a lot of the anxiety almost instantaneously, which has led me to believe that, you know, a lot of it is, you know, it's just really building the positive connections in your brain. Sometimes, especially if you're used to being anxious, it's not just that, but sometimes you can just easily fall back into these old patterns because you built that that connection so strong. So you talked about like seeing some scenes from your experience. You talked about it being very scary. You talked about it being uplifting. It seemed like a roller coaster of emotions that you experienced. Yeah, it, it tends to be. What does someone need to know going into this experience? Say they've signed up and they've said yes. What do you do to prepare people? So, I mean, one, we tell them not to focus on other people's experience. And so... Often with vets, I tell them to try to avoid listening to other people's stories, especially when they're going into their hallucinations and all sorts of the dream world and all this other kind of stuff, because everybody's journey is unique. And the psychedelics and ayahuasca in particular tend to work specifically to you, which is what seems because understand things in different ways. We all have different interpretations of the world. So me teaching you in one style or in a style that works for me may not work for you. Right. So yeah, we tell people not to focus on too much on other people's stories or their own journeys because it's unique to them and it's what they probably needed to learn whatever lessons or to see what they needed to see. And it'll change for each person. Some people have a lot of visuals. Some people have very little visuals. Some people feel like nothing's really going on, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not working behind the scenes. It's very individualistic. And every ceremony you go to, it can be a completely different experience as well. So it's, it's more of preparing in other ways. We often tell people to have some intentions, which are understanding aspects in their life that they want to improve or that have been holding them back. For instance, for me, you know, social anxiety or my feeling insecure of not having a specific purpose in my life and just really focusing on that. And that in itself trains the person to start thinking inwardly and start understanding what their emotions are telling them and, you know, certain avenues that they need to explore. And so then once they get to the ceremony, even if the ceremony takes them down different paths, it's this practice of tapping into and listening to your brain and your emotions, which is part of the exercise and part of what makes this more effective. Yeah. So you just alluded to your purpose, how you kind of didn't know it before. What have you received as far as like enlightenment or advice on purpose from your own healing process? Uh, it's just purpose itself. Obviously, I found a path afterwards, and that was starting this foundation. But the focus on purpose was far less important to me. 
And like I said, it was really about my doing everything I can to maximize the present and then the daily basis. Purpose is, you know, much more, a lot of it depends on other people's view. You know, like these people look for like legacy or, or whatever, and oftentimes has little to do with your satisfaction and happiness in life. You're going for like these titles. And so purpose really for me just really became a much more smaller, daily manageable sort of thing. And, you know, you, you can't achieve that every day, but for the most part, more days than not, are you doing what you think you should be doing? Uh, are you being productive? Are you being creative? Are you happy with your life and where it's at? Or do you feel like you're wasting a lot of your life by drinking too much or by just being lazy and watching Netflix for months at a time? And that's, a, again, it's an individualistic thing. Right. So what drove you ultimately to being such a purpose-filled person right now? Like, it seems like you do everything for helping other veterans get healed. What is it about healing fellow veterans that taps so much into your sense of purpose? You know, it's just my community. And when you're in the military, you become very close-knit to the people you serve with. It's a very tight brotherhood. And obviously, my community is suffering in a lot of ways. I knew a lot of friends that were struggling themselves, and there just wasn't weren't options there. And here I was in a situation where I had this profound change in myself, and I had this opportunity to spread this message. And so in my mind, that led me to almost an obligation. You know, if I know something that can help others, and I have the ability to push that message forward, there's you know, almost this obligation to do it. And so that's really what pushed me, you know, almost this, I guess, duty sense, just because, you know, I don't want my friends to suffer. And every time I get a suicide notification, it not only hurts me, but it hurts the community even more. And like I said, there are potential answers. It's not for everybody, but there is this avenue that we can look into that can help tens of thousands of people. And so, you know, at least for this time in my life, I have this ability to do it. And I feel like with my previous skill sets, I can bring to the table an effective way to do that. And so, you know, uh, that's where I feel like I can have the most impact right now at this point in my life. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. I like how you talk about how you bring a sense of community to it. Like this is your community that you identify with. Why is community so important in your process of healing with the veterans? I was doing a little bit of reading and I kind of sensed that that was a really important element was that the veterans community and people within each veterans community need to be a part of their integration process. Could you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Um, community is important to everybody. And that's really, you know, I mentioned a lot that there's a mental health crisis in the veteran community, but it's actually pretty there's an issue, I think, with the world in general, or especially the Western world. There seems to be a growing rate of depression, anxiety, even suicide. And a lot of it is there's a lack of community. There's this lack of tribalism. As we build these cities longer, it makes people feel more isolated. You know, that's a pretty common theme in places like New York, where if you live in this huge building, you're less likely to know your neighbors and other people in the building. Whereas if you live in a small communal building, you're probably going to get to know your neighbors pretty well. And same with communities, same with towns. And obviously the veteran community is very tight because they're in this very stressful situation, this profession that they have to rely on others. And so a strong brotherhood 
uh, forms from that. And when veterans leave, when they exit the military, they go from the situation where there is this person or this group of people they can rely on, this family, to this isolated world. And so for them, the distinction is very, it's a big contrast. But you see that with broader population as well. You know, with this new age of social media and internet, even though we're more connected, our communities are, are much weaker. We don't feel as personally and uh, connected one-on-one uh, people. And so you see that ripple through society in a lot of different ways. So with this process, what we try to do is, one, build local communities. So, you know, if people are from the same area, have them almost pay it forward and have uh, businesses and other people in the, the community support the veterans and rebuild this sort of infrastructure. But then two, when we send them to the retreats, we try to send them in groups. That way, it's almost like going back to this military world where they're in this very stressful, scary situation, but they have somebody else that they rely on. They have somebody else that speaks the same language. Yeah, no, that's great. I love that. Do you feel like the veterans are uniquely struggling with community? It seems from, I'm not a veteran, but it seems like from the outside that you do build this brotherhood in, in the military. And then when you're back in the civilian world, you're facing all the same issues that you, you just mentioned. you living by your neighbors, but not knowing them. Um, is that kind of a, like that dissonance, does that create some traumatic effects on a veteran? And are you looking to kind of recapture some of that sense of community once again, or is it a whole new thing you're trying to capture on the backside of this ayahuasca healing experience? Yeah, I mean, that's one element. You know, mental health is a very complex thing. So, uh, you know, one of them is definitely community. Some of it is even, you know, physical trauma to the brain. Some of it are psychological issues from experiences or even childhood issues. So it's many dynamics. And even, you know, health, exercise, what you eat, all this contributes to your mental health. So it's helping build this whole structure around the veteran's life and within their day-to-day routine that leads them to better, healthier day-to-day life because it all supports each other. You know, if the moment you start falling off on one way, it makes you less likely to exercise. It makes you less likely to socialize. It makes you more likely to do unhealthy decisions. And then you just get more and more depressed in this whole um, with the veteran community, they do have a very specific form of it. Cause like I said, they're going from this extreme contrast, but I do think, uh, you see the same sort of issues maybe in a much lighter sense in the rest of society nowadays. I, I feel like these struggles are, are pretty universal or growing that way. What I see with a lot of veteran issues is they almost tend to be almost this canary in the coal mine for the rest of society because they live these extreme lives, and especially when they get out, they experience it in much more intense ways and maybe much earlier than the rest of the population. But the same issues that veterans tend to have in this category will be seen in the rest of society, maybe over a much longer time frame. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, thanks for speaking on that. Why did you decide to name your organization the Heroic Hearts Project? So the name comes from a Lord Tennyson poem. It's called Ulysses. And the poem is about the main character in the Odyssey, Ulysses. And within that, and the poem and the story, it's about going off on these great adventures, going with community and being in almost this battle situation. And 
the poem itself really goes into how hard it is to return home after that, you know, after going through all this sort of stuff and being exposed to different worlds and going back, even though you want to so much, this normal life can be so hard and so out of your reach. So that for me really symbolized a lot of the struggles that veterans are going through in, in a metaphorical way. Yeah. What are some of the like powerful patient testimonies that you've heard? Are, are there any that you could elaborate on right now? Like any really big turnaround stories or anything that stands out as a powerful experience for someone? Yeah, I mean, fortunately, we've had quite a few, which really keeps the energy in me wanting to do this. You know, if it was much more mixed or on the, you know, very little effects, I don't know if I would, could keep up the energy because it's it's such a laborious process to push this forward. But because you see these life-changing results often, you know, it really gives you evidence of what you're doing. So some, you know, go to it and just have, like, that's all they needed. And then they can really take control of their lives and it, it completely turns things around. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from living at your purpose? I know a bad accident, breakups, and head injuries have plagued my path of purpose. The good news is that People of Purpose has now partnered with BetterHelp, an online counseling platform that will assess your needs from exactly where you are and match you with your very own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. I know that when we are purposefully and passionately pursuing our visions, it can be so hard to take the big action you need for yourself. That's why I love BetterHelp. BetterHelp is available worldwide from the comfort and ease of your smartphone. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor, call or video chat as often as you need. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses without needing to be in one single city or drive and sit in an uncomfortable waiting room just to have a 30-minute conversation. These conversations have the power to literally change your life. We need to make sure we're having them. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. For me, the sign-up process was so thorough and personalized to exactly what I needed. Within 15 minutes, I was done, and the very next day, I was paired with a counselor with the pedigree to help me think through exactly the questions I have at this stage in my life. Since I've met my premarital Christian counselor, Colleen, I've had enormous insights on where and how to create better boundaries, and even had a session with my fiance while she's in Thailand and I'm in California. It's amazing how powerful and accessible counseling is today with the power of the internet. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. Whether you need professional coaching for your business, help overcoming a trauma, or just need a thought partner who would walk through a rocky part of a road with you, BetterHelp wants to help you start living a happier life today. People of Purpose listeners get 10% off your first month. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash people of purpose. That's betterhelp.com forward slash people of purpose and join the over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Uh, one of the most more recent retreats we had, it was a bigger group of like seven veterans. And after just one ceremony, a few of the veterans there had had suicidal ideation in the past. You know, it was, it was a common thought process for them. 
And they said after that first ceremony, they just realized how ridiculous even considering that would be. So, I mean, that sort of immediate result is amazing. And obviously, you know, you have to track to see if that stays. But for nearly everybody, the long-term effects, even if it's more subtle, remain there even a year, two years longer afterwards. Yeah. How is this being perceived institutionally? It seems like you have an overwhelming abundance of positive results from this. Why do you think that things aren't getting quite the institutional or traction from like a place like the Veterans Administration? On the VA side, uh, it's hard just because it's such a large bureaucracy. It tends to be almost the last adapter of a lot of emerging technologies just because it's so big and has to go through all this political system. Even with the results that we have and that you can look up on like different websites, it's all anecdotal. And, you know, from a scientific method sort of perspective, it plays a part, but it's nowhere near conclusive because you need to control for variables and you need to do specific clinical trials in order to prove it. Because there's been a lot of things in the past that, you know, maybe had some great anecdotal evidence and when they tested it, it turned out to be either placebo or the actual mechanism of it working tended to be something else. But the issue with a lot of psychedelics, which, you know, really makes it hard for it to move forward is that it is constricted by our current drug policy, which has made it nearly impossible for the last 50 years to study it because psychedelics, marijuana, MDMA, some other substances, they're all categorized at schedule one, which just makes any sort of research process extremely restrictive and nearly impossible actually of because of all the regulations you have to go through and the costs associated with it and that classification almost also limits the funding that's available because effectively universities can't fund you you're not going to get government grants so plant medicines which may not return a profit will not be studied by or will not be funded by somebody like Pfizer because they're not going to get the money back on the tail end. And so they're just kind of stuck in this black zone. But it is opening up. So you're seeing MDMA is a couple of years away from being a legal treatment. Uh, psilocybin will be soon to follow. Uh, so there is interest. It is growing. And, you know, DMT, ayahuasca, some of these other psychedelics will most likely be soon to follow just because the evidence is so profound and has been shown to be so much more effective than anything else that's available. So even in the case of MDMA, their current clinical trials, they're having a high 70 success rate, high 70% of patients having a remission of PTSD-like symptoms, where as previous treatments couldn't get past 30, 33%. So it's a huge jump. And so as they go through these chest trials, the results can't be ignored. So it's it's a question of time, it's a question of money, and hopefully we get enough momentum that we're changing the drug policy at the tail end as well. Right. Yeah, and I know just from the little bit of research I've done to the topic, I learned a lot from Matt Simpson, who I know works with you. He was a former guest on the podcast, the one who recommended you. He talked a lot about this Michael Pollan's book that just came out called How to Change Your Mind. And a lot of the references and resources within that book are pretty powerful. Like Johns Hopkins is now on board as like a major uh, research facility. And then there's like entrepreneurs like Tim Ferriss, for example, who are donating million dollar plus to this kind of research. So I too seem to see that there's some traction that's building 
it's something that I would say that the mainstream at least has heard about in some capacity at this point. And hopefully our generation just isn't totally biased against this. Yeah, it seems to be hopeful to me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Michael Pollan's book was definitely a big change because it brought it to a new audience. And his audience tends to be more along the lines of people who would probably not be or who would have their own stigmas around these sort of substances. And so at least it presented a new perspective to them and at least put it on their radar. And with Heroic Hearts, that's one of our main missions. Besides for the direct connection of vets to this sort of therapy and their support, you know, we're trying to use the testimonials of these veterans in the most effective way to challenge the current notions around this and put it in people's faces and force them to question why these substances can't be studied. And so by having these powerful veteran stories, this group that a lot of America really trusts and respects, it hopefully will force them to question why we are not able to look into this treatment that seems to be so effective for this group. So on one side, you know, ours is really that sort of outreach, that sort of uh, communication goal with using the veterans. Right. How can people that haven't uh, gone through, you know, these really traumatic military experiences, are there a lot, is there benefit to people that don't suffer from PTSD to do ayahuasca in your opinion? Yes, of course. There's all sorts of reasons people go. And even the veterans that we serve, it's not all, you know, trauma-based PTSD. Some are just looking for a repurpose to their life or have depression from various aspects. The majority are obviously combat-related. But uh, a lot of people get all sorts of other benefits from it. Again, I I don't want to emphasize that it's not, I wouldn't recommend it for everybody. And it tends to be better for those that are willing to put in the work. You know, like I said, it's not just this magic pill that you're going to figure out everything. And so for those that have tried all sorts of different therapies, it tends to be more effective because they finally come to something that they can use as an effective tool. But other people, you know, if they're just looking to reset, they're looking to become better in tune with themselves. If they use this in a correct manner, then there's all sorts of benefits that can come about from it. Right. Nice. What have you learned about trauma going through this experience yourself and seeing so many others go through the experience? Are there any like principles or takeaways around trauma that you like to communicate? It's just very complex. I think, I feel like our definitions, especially around PTSD, are, are very superficial. And in order to treat it going forward, I feel like we're going to have to have a much, much broader and much more in-depth understanding of what causes trauma, what are the elements of it. Because like I said, it, there are trauma definitely related to specific events, specific things that you see and that happen in your life. But we're now realizing that, you know, a lot of symptoms can be caused by actual damage to the brain, which causes the hormones to become imbalanced. It can be caused by bad diet. It can be caused by lack of exercise. It can be caused by lack of community. So it's a very complex issue and affects everybody very uniquely. But right now, how we generally prescribe it is, you know, if you're depressed, it's just blanket term and you should get some sort of medication, um, which tends to be pretty, not necessarily as effective as we initially thought. And so that's really what I've learned through this process. It's just kind of become more sensitive that 
there's a lot more there than we realize at this point. Yeah, yeah, that's great. What you said around the brain injury really struck a chord with me. I've had several concussions and my most recent one was about three, four years ago. And I remember like having six weeks of a work note and I was at that point working for a corporation. So I was able to still get collect pay and keep my benefits. But I mean, I was like in a dark room and I was like processing things slowly and I couldn't look at a phone screen or read for very long or hold conversations. And I can definitely see how if you don't address that and you just keep pushing through that, it starts to give you a more depressed demeanor. Uh, you lose some of the belief in yourself, maybe belief in a higher purpose ever finding you. So I really appreciate that you're helping to steer people back into, you know, that trueness of purpose and of living free of these things that kind of get put on us as we live life, but that we aren't necessarily born with. What's your opinion around kind of the state of people, like when they're born versus like as they go through life? Are we all meant to, to find purpose and live free of these things or is sometimes it just inescapable? Do you have any realizations around that? In terms of what do you mean by inescapable, that some can find it and some may not? Yeah, like is this a panacea or is there ever going to be a panacea around trauma? I don't know if there'll ever be a panacea. I think there's always going to be people struggling in some sort of way. You know, that's in some ways that's part of the evolutionary process is that we're all built a little bit different. And you know, in some situations, a lot of us do really well, and some people might struggle, but you start changing the situations, and then those people that were struggling before all of a sudden become the masters, you know? And that's what allows our species to survive into the future. And I feel like that diversity sometimes can, you know, unfairly disadvantage some people. Uh, but we should always strive to, you know, do what we can to help those people out. Purpose, I feel like way more than have it now should be able to find their purpose, at least on a day-to-day -day basis. I feel like we've kind of become out of balance. And so there's a lot of good things about modern society, but I think we have to focus on where are we lacking. And, you know, we've covered it pretty extensively in this interview of community is definitely one of them. If you compare, you know, like New York versus a small village in South America and the difference is there, you know, obviously New York has, you have better medical treatment you know, survival of, of children and all sorts of these things, which are great. And just the diversity of life in terms of different food. But on the other side, you know, it's a much simpler life in South America and they have this whole community that they can rely on. They never are going to be lonely in that sense. And they have, if they are having troubles, it's the community's problem, not just their own. And so in terms of that, I'm sure they are much healthier. So I think we just really need to maybe take a step back there's just, especially now, we're going to have to. And if we don't, it's going to cause a massive shift in our society no matter what. And we're seeing that already with the polarization and the, the effects that you see already with social media. There's a lot going on. There's a lot changing in our lives. And I think mentally and socially, we're really struggling right now to figure out how to incorporate this and still be healthy. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, I, I really not, I agree with that a lot. I lived in Thailand teaching English in a small village for a year and a half. And the sense of community is just so palpable there. Even though I was a complete foreigner and don't really speak the language, it was hard to not be in groups of Thai people. Like that's just kind of how life works there. And here back in the U.S., it's entirely different. It's much more 
isolated. You could go a week without really having an in-person contact with someone of significance. And I too see a little bit of a problem with that. Why is it that you have moved to Columbia? That's where you had been living, right? And then you just recently moved to New York? Correct. Columbia just seemed like the next step. Obviously, like I said, I had left my job, so I wasn't tied to anywhere. And I was in Peru and still figuring out the next steps of my life. And I had the concept of this nonprofit, but I had to do some research and figure out if that was doable at that point in my life. And, you know, I had just happened to meet a friend in Colombia and just really fell in love with the people, the culture. Medellin's a beautiful city. And I met my girlfriend there. And so that was another reason to stay. And I just really liked it. And it worked out well while starting this nonprofit just because the cost of living was much lower, you know, similar to Thailand. So it really allowed me to pursue this without too much of a burden on myself financially. If I was in the U.S., I wouldn't have been able to dedicate as much time to this foundation as was necessary to start it up. And so, you know, I had an amazing two years there. And then as opportunities presented itself for myself and my girlfriend, New York just seemed like the best next step. And so it's definitely a change, but there's a lot of benefits to New York as well. And especially at the position that the foundation is in, I think it'll be very helpful for moving forward and and expanding in the way that it needs to now. Yeah, I bet a lot of amazing opportunities have come in your life since you've started the organization and gone, you know, fully into it. Now you're moving to New York, like you're really basing a lot of your life around the organization you've created. And I think that's quite commendable. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's fortunately, I guess that's my personality is whatever it is, if I'm dedicating my time, I want to do it right. And I want to see it to the end, at least till it's sustainable where, you know, whatever point that is that. If I still am interested and it can go on by itself, then I'll reassess. Right. Nice. So how is it that you experience purpose on a day-to-day basis? You said at least we should be striving for that day-to-day basis. How is it even on a day where maybe a grant doesn't go through or you got a suicide notification or like, you know, worse kind of day? How is it that you experience purpose? So man, those days it can be hard. And like I said, it doesn't have to be 24 hours a day, every single minute. You know, you're allowed to have the bad days. You're allowed to have the sadness. If those sort of things happen, then it's take some time to yourself, really understand where your emotions are coming from. Don't suppress them, but allow them to be, you know, if if there is a suicide, then take the time to be sad. Don't let it you know, completely derail you and consume you for weeks, if that's possible. But, you know, celebrate the life through your sadness. On other times, it's it's really, you know, we, we all feel it, whether or not we put too much emphasis on it. But those days where you really want to be productive, but you're just lazy, and then you just feel really bad afterwards, or even a little bit anxious because you knew you should have gotten to work. So just incorporating things in your life to where you stay on that good path. And then also on the other side, allow yourself to be lazy, you know, allow yourself to have fun with your significant other, your girlfriend, your family, all that kind of stuff. You have to figure it out for yourself. Hey guys, this is your People of Purpose podcast host, Tanner Badgley. Would you find value in receiving a very short email every other weekend that helps you grow on your path to purpose? The People of Purpose newsletter, or POP for short, is an email where I share with you the most interesting things I've recently discovered, have been thinking about, or implementing into my life to help you more purposefully pursue your purpose. It will include a short story, 
some words of wisdom to help you be more purposeful during your day, and an update on how the last guest has inspired me and how they can inspire you too. So take a small step of action right now by sending a quick email to peopleofpurposepodcast at gmail.com, letting us know you would like to receive the POP newsletter. Just include People of Purpose newsletter in the subject header and you'll receive the very next one. Here's to becoming People of Purpose. So for me, you know, I, I try to exercise every day. I try to have a to-do list so I at least get that gratification of being productive. But I also give myself a little leeway that if something comes up that I wasn't able to necessarily do everything, then that's okay, you know. But for the most part, I can stand with each day and like, okay, well, yeah, I did what I needed to that day and, and I was happy and I spent some time with those that I care about. So let's continue that on. Wow. Yeah, that's great. I love to hear that. What are some questions that you've been asking yourself recently related to your sense of purpose? The questions are always just a reality check. Like I said, sometimes you can get so busy, especially now here in New York, I'm doing a side coding class. And so, you know, just added more to my plate. And so I can lose track of stuff and certain emotions will build up. So when I feel that, or when I react in a way that's kind of surprises me, you know, if I more reactionary or more angry or more sad, then the questions are, okay, why am I feeling this? Where's this stemming from? Am I handling it in a healthy manner? What can I do to prevent this in the future? So those are sort of the questions of just keeping tabs on myself, uh, checking in as often as possible. And when I forget, make sure I take at least a little bit of time to go back into that. Yeah. Who are your biggest influences right now in your walk of purpose? Do you have any thought leaders or books or podcasts that are influencing you a lot right now? Podcast wise, I tend to listen to Joe Rogan just because I like that he has such a a wide variety of, of people. You know, you can have authors, you can have physicists. And so it's just kind of interesting. I throw that in when I'm at the gym and working out, you know, just there's a lot of very noble people that are working very hard in the psychedelic world that deserve all the respect. You know, they've dedicated their lives and they risk their careers, what a lot of people may not appreciate nowadays is a lot of these guys that are a little bit more notable, had they even brought up psychedelics or try to pursue that when they were younger, they were risking their professional career, you know, because it was like this taboo word. And so a lot of them persevered and pushed through. And so, you know, some of the most notable ones are people like Rick Doblin, who didn't accept that MDMA was illegal and has dedicated his whole life to doing it in a very methodical way to get at clinical trials in through the avenues that were legal in the U S and now he's finding success. And I think those sort of stories deserve to be celebrated and that person and that perseverance deserves to be celebrated as well. Yeah. Nice. And I guess as we wrap this up, I want to ask some like overall purpose questions that maybe seem a little philosophical in nature, but what do you value much more than you did five years ago that you could attribute your journey of purpose? Like I said, uh, the day-to-day, obviously, uh, I'm trying to always value that more uh, as much as possible. I'm at a phase in my life where I value more stability in my life. You know, I still travel around and I like being mobile and I'm probably more mobile than a lot of people, but there's certain stability that I'm trying to establish in my life. Even this foundation 
having a healthy relationship, those sort of things. Just because in my past, I was often would start some sort of new career, I would travel to a new country, do all sorts of things, which were great. And I really enjoyed that. But I just started getting exhausted of having to restart from ground zero every single time. And especially that this last go where I was in corporate finance and starting to climb up the ladder and I had to leave that again. And it became very clear that I am tired of having to prove myself to other people and I'm tired to have to start at this very basic level. And so that's sort of the focus of my life right now, of building the infrastructure, building reputation and building almost a portfolio to where I don't have to do that in the future. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. I like to hear that. I feel like I'm entering that phase of my life more than I ever have before, kind of coming into my later 20s. It's something that I used to see as a negative. Like I'm 22, 23, 24. I just want to move and be and see lots of things and experience immersion into lots of different microcultures and meet all kinds of people. And I still have a lot of that in me. But I think that that stability has, it's like the yin and yang type of thing. It has a grounding element to it that can really help you to deepen your impact and stay on the same path for a while, which, you know, you start to build momentum in a way that you don't if you're constantly jumping around. Yeah. And then you can, you know, it's different phases of your life too. And so I had that phase and, you know, similar to you and I very much enjoyed it. It's built who I am, but now I'm in this phase and then I, you know, that doesn't mean I can't return to that. But when I do return and if I am able to move around, I will view it from a different perspective. And I won't be as stressed out about finance or what I'm going to do next because I'll already have that built. And so then I can go there with this as a different person, so to speak. Right. How about like metaphysically, like has the ayahuasca experience or your day-to-day walk in purpose, how has that influenced your conception of God and religion and your faith? Things are like along those lines. Um, I don't know. It's tricky. It's a never-ending questioning and processing. I've never been extremely religious in a traditional sense, and I'm not really one to exert my opinion over others. For me, it's kind of, this is the way it works, and you might as well live your best life right now, because I have no idea what's going to happen afterwards. The whole psychedelic realm definitely adds some complexity to the whole question, and you know, I don't, I don't necessarily speak one way or the other. I might have my own conceptions, but you know, I, I hate decisiveness or I hate people that are just 100% in on something as opposed to just allowing that the fact that they don't know. You know, I feel like my process into spirituality is just understanding the more ways of, that, of me not knowing and not knowing the answers and being comfortable with that. So I guess that's kind of my connection to spirituality of, you know, I've, there's some weird stuff and there's some sometimes when especially in this world where things just line up and there's this weird connectivity that often happens in the ayahuasca world. And, you know, I'm sure you can find scientific answers for it. I'm sure you can find spiritual answers for it. For me, it's just living in the gray area and not necessarily having to have a, a one answer to, to comfort me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, What is it that people can do to kind of tap into your sense of purpose? Like, how can people who are listening to this and really resonate with your story and really want to contribute and give to your purpose, what can people do next? So, 
you know, obviously the immediate way is donations. We are a nonprofit and it is very hard for us, especially operating in this gray realm that has a lot of stigmas around it to raise money. But we operate full volunteer crew. So every donation that comes in goes directly towards supporting a vet. Uh, you know, we don't take any of the money outside of the logistical support of these veterans. So, I mean, that's obviously the immediate way. We have the ability to do that in our website. We have a Patreon. But if, if people want to help and, you know, if they don't have financial means and they want to help with their time, we're also uh, currently starting an ambassador program. So people who want to get active in the psychedelic space but don't know how or want to support veterans in a more direct way, we're starting sort of this application and it's going to be an ever-evolving process. So we want to link up people who are interested in this world with vets who are looking for support. So the people can help these vets, you know, set up their own crowdsourcing campaigns, their own GoFundMes, and connect with them directly and support them and help them write it out. And obviously we would help on a, on a much higher side with information and our graphics. So we're, we're starting to start that community as well. Um, so there, there's links on our website. If you are interested, you can reach out, just contact us and, let us know, you know, what skill set you can offer, how you want to help. The more specific people are, the better it allows us to figure out programs to set up to give them those pathways to do it. Yeah, very good. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I know that Matt Simpson really speaks highly of the work you do. I know there's lots of places that people want to give to, but I think that what you have outlined here is just such a direct way of contributing really meaningfully to individuals life who has served this country and had to go through a lot of experiences to be able to even find heroic hearts and fortunately a lot of us don't have to go through all that trauma but someone has and it would be great to be able to help out those people so i hope that people do donate no that would be great or volunteer time Volunteering is such a direct way of tapping into purpose when you volunteer for a cause that you really care about and believe in. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And on the zoomed out level too, you know, we, it is for helping veterans. But like I said before, getting the veteran stories out there and pushing for this in the long term or even in the much quicker term will help everybody because uh, a lot of people have trauma. And they're coming across the same issues where they don't have access to these substances that can provide them a lot of relief. And so through our program, through our process, we are accelerating the ability for other people to get it as well because it's forcing politicians, it's forcing people who make decisions to face this because you know if they have to answer to a veteran, it's going to hold a lot of weight politically. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for sharing that your story today and ways in which people can give. I, I'm a believer. What do you think that your organization or this landscape as a whole looks like 10, 15 years from now? What is your hope? Oh, it's hard to say. It's already going crazy with momentum. In, in 10 years or even more, psychedelics are going to be a pretty big buzzword in all things medical. Similar to what you're seeing with uh, cannabis right now, but probably even in a much higher rate just because they can lead to a tremendous amount of insight and other mechanisms in our brain. So I think it's going to dominate grant res like grant proposals, university studies, you know, new medicines. Uh, the thing we have to be careful for is obviously 
you know, where these substances are coming from, you know, conservation methods. A lot of the ayahuasca comes from Amazonian plants. There's some other psychedelics, one called bufa, which comes from a toad. So all these things we have to, if we're going to use it, make sure we're not damaging the ecosystems, make sure we're not doing destruction beyond that. Preserving also the indigenous cultures around this, I think that's very important, not just taking it and completely altering it, but respecting where it comes from, respecting old traditions, because those were the ones that kept this alive. And there's a lot of intelligence and knowledge there. And then the other thing is there's just definitely going to be an interesting battle from the economic side and from keeping it almost to its root side. You know, a lot of the movement behind cannabis and psychedelics is because most of them are plant-based and so anybody can grow them and anybody, you know, it's almost this open source to the people. But what you're seeing with psilocybin right now is that they're finding ways to patent it to where only certain medical companies can use it. So, you know, it's, it's going to be an interesting path, but hopefully we can do it in a way that is respectful and, and that helps more people at the end of the day without, you know, putting them in tremendous financial debt as a lot of our current medical procedures do. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing today, Jesse. I really appreciate hearing your story and how it relates to your sense of purpose and this organization you've created and how it's running your life in so many ways that I think that that's what a lot of people do strive for is to have something that just guides them every day towards some bigger mission that's so much bigger than themselves. And it's really commendable that you've created that in your own unique way for your own unique audience and community and really carved out your niche for how you're living out your purpose and just uh, hope the very best for you and your organization as you keep moving forward. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm glad we can make this work and, you know, thanks for all the kind words. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun being here. <laughs> Good to hear. Thank you very much, Jesse. Thank you. So what actionable step are you going to take next? Do you have a lingering question? Or is there something we can help you work through to figure out and reach your purpose? People of Purpose is here for you. Just send us an email or a message on Facebook. If you want continued inspiration, subscribe to the podcast and soak in the stories and words of our insightful guests. Do you have any friends that might enjoy this podcast? Bring them on board as a podcast subscriber. And if you want to actually see the guests behind the voices, as well as receive daily inspiration, Follow the podcast and journey on Instagram at People of Purpose Podcast or at People of Purpose on Facebook to join our purpose-seeking community. By joining, you will know the minute each new episode is published, hear first about upcoming People of Purpose news, and receive regular tidbits of inspiration. I'm purposely perusing, pursuing, and pondering. It's simply a regular dose of goodness, intentionally filtered by me to nourish your path to purpose. Lastly, if you like this podcast, please post a review wherever you listen to it. Doing so will not only help us to grow, but will also allow your voice to be heard and who knows who you could inspire. Cheers, and here's to becoming.